in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We will we'll finish it up. Uh, we could probably get a few more, milk a few more out of this chapter, but uh, we're going to finish it up today. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 39. So 26 through 39. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this time. We're thankful for your word. And we are thankful for the love of God that is... Uh, been uh, shed abroad in our hearts. And it is that which keeps us, it's which draws us and keeps us and, and also draws others. And we just pray, Father, that today you would uh, show us the depths of that love and, and that we may we come to understand it in a new way. And uh, Father, we just thank you for uh, this time. We pray you'd be in our midst and uh, just pour out your spirit upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So verses 26 through 39, it's a long read, let's read it. And likewise, also the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For what we ought to pray for, we don't know. But the Spirit itself intercedes for us with unspeakable groanings. And the one who searches the heart, that is God himself, knows what the will of the Spirit is. Because it, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to God's will. And we know that to those who love God, God works all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Because whom he foreknew, also he determined beforehand, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that his Son might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he determined beforehand, these he also called. And those whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. What therefore shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with his son, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is the Messiah, the one who died, but rather also the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of the Messiah? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or the sword just as it is, it is written because of you we are killed all the day we are counted as sheep to the slaughter but in all these things in all of these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us for i am persuaded that neither death nor life neither angels nor rulers nor powers neither things present nor things to come Neither height, nor depth, depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in the Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. I want to begin this morning by looking first at where Paul has been going in this chapter, or uh, where, to, to pick up on his metaphor, where we are being led by the Spirit. And then come back and talk about how Paul envisions this happening in and through us in the present. What's happening in the present in relation to what is to come? 
Last week, we saw that Paul employed Exodus language to describe the journey of God's people, the renewed people of God, the ones who had come out of Egypt and were going into the promised land. The spirit, he says, is leading us out of Egypt's slavery, so to speak, sin slavery, through the wilderness and into the promised land. We are in the wilderness now eating of the fruit of the land, eating of the first fruits, that is the spirit, before we get into the land, to the inheritance, the promised land. This inaugurated eschatology is what we see throughout Paul and the New Testament. The resurrection life, the life that is part of the age to come, the life that is ours in the resurrection has in some way been brought back into the present, but it also awaits us in the future in all of its fullness. We saw also last week that it is this, this promised land, the inheritance, the renewed creation over which God's people will have been, uh, will be set as its rightful heirs, that that is our future hope, that is our destiny. This we might call the renewal of all things or new creation, as Paul calls it elsewhere. The renewal of all things we saw will co coincide with the redemption of our bodies at the resurrection, which Paul calls the adoption as sons. God will renew creation when it is revealed who are the sons of God and who are to receive the inheritance, the renewed world, the new, the new cosmos through Jesus, the son of God. In other words, Jesus as the son receives all that belongs to the father. And we, through Jesus, inherit it with him. Heirs of God, he says, co-heirs with the Messiah. This is the ultimate hope. God's firstborn son, Jesus, has been enthroned through his death and resurrection. And we are then made sons through faith in him, called to share in that inheritance, the whole cosmos, as we saw in Romans 4.13. Abraham was given the world as its inheritance, the cosmos. Remember also chapter one, verse four, Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This language of firstborn is something that we often get hung up on, but it is sonship language. It is also enthronement language. For God to declare that Jesus is the son of God is to declare that he is the rightful king. He is the rightful heir. It is another way of saying that God has enthroned Jesus as Lord and will enthrone those who are in the Messiah as his brethren, ruling along with him in the age to come. Sonship language is enthronement language. Another way of saying that God has enthroned Jesus as Lord and will enthrone those who are in him as his brethren, who will rule along with him in the age to come. Let that sink in for a while. It's amazing. It truly is amazing. Think of Psalm 2, where the Lord says to his anointed one, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, does that mean that he gave birth to him? No, it means he enthroned him. He is now king. That's what it means to be son of God. He is enthroned. This day I've begotten you. And then the next phrase is, ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. 
this sonship language is about enthronement. God's enthronement through his anointed one, his son. He receives the inheritance, the cosmos, and we become sons and inherit it through the son by faith ahead of time to be fully realized in the future. It's this reality, yet future, that must be realized in the present. And the spirit, and this brings us to Romans 8, the spirit is the one through whom this future state is, in certain ways, being brought back into the present. It is a similar story as before, but from a different angle. How does it work? First, God is now active in this process through his spirit. We saw that also last week that both the creation and we ourselves in our present, not fully redeemed state, not yet resurrected state, wherein we are doing battle with the flesh constantly, we ourselves are groaning, he says. We are groaning. Now, I think, I was thinking of this this morning, what's going on here, this, this language of groaning. When you think about what the what Israel was doing as they came out of Egypt, what were they doing? Grumbling. They were grumbling, right? So they weren't groaning for the, the, the land to come. They were not groaning for the, the resurrection, so to speak. The land, they were grumbling. Paul says, you need to be groaning or you are groaning. And that's what we're doing. The spirit itself is producing this within us, the uh, living in the state of uh, the state that we're in, in this present world waiting on the age to come, we are groaning. We ourselves are groaning along with the creation. Verse 22 says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In other words, the, the creation is waiting on an exodus as well, out of its present state into the redemption of the glory, uh, the glory of the sons of God. And not only this, he says in verse 23, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, which he then defines as the redemption of our bodies. This is our present state, in a state of groaning prayer for the renewal of all things, even the renewal of our bodies. Hear me here. This isn't simply a groaning for heaven, as our hymns often have us sing. It is much more than that. It is the very renewal of all creation ahead of behind the renewal of our bodies. This glorious, uh, the glorious body of our Lord Jesus Christ will lead, when we are glorified along with him, will lead to the renewal of all creation. That's what he's saying here. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies the resurrection, resurrection leading to renewed creation. And we longingly pray for this end and our role within it, and perhaps even others who will participate in it as well. In 26 through 30, Paul has more to say about the state, the state that we are in now, namely what God is doing alongside us and in it. God that is, the Spirit of God, is groaning within us, helping us in our weaknesses, helping us with our prayers. For we don't know what we ought to pray for as we ought in anticipation of God's renewal of us and of all creation. 
but the spirit does. The spirit knows. The spirit intercedes with unspeakable groanings, taking what is a longing, a desire for renewal, for life, and bringing it coherently, coherently to the Father. Verse 26, and likewise also the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For what we ought to pray for, we do not know. But the spirit itself intercedes for us with unspeakable groanings. Note that these are not spoken groanings. This is not speaking in tongues. This is the inaudible groanings of the spirit as it intercedes for us in prayer. We shouldn't worry about uh, that the message is received by God since God, the heart searcher, it says, knows what the spirit is doing. And he knows that the spirit is interceding in accordance with his will. Verse 27, and the one who searches the hearts, the heart searcher, God, Abba, he said earlier, knows what the will of the Spirit is. That is what the Spirit is doing. He knows that. God knows that because the Spirit is interceding for the saints according to God's will. I don't think I'm alone in saying that our prayers often lack words, but this seems to be quite normal, though mysterious in its circumstances. In anticipation of being glorified with a new body, ruling in God's new creation, who has words for that? For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit does and intercedes for us according to the will of God. So it seems to me that what we should do is focus on what is coming. Let the Spirit lead us in that prayer. Let the Spirit pray for us as he knows as he knows, he, as he intercedes for us. Often prayer is centered around right behavior, but behavior isn't mentioned here in those forms. It doesn't mean it's not mentioned, but not in those, those terms. Prayer here is set within the context of God's purposes in Christ, namely our conformity to the image of God's son through the love of God. Once again, not do's and don'ts, but the Messiah, that's what he focuses on. Our love of God and our conformity by the Spirit to the image of God's Son. Listen to it here in Paul's summary of what God has and is doing in us. And we know that to those who love God, God works all things for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. Because whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that his son might be the firstborn among many brethren and those whom he predestined these he also called that effectual calling by which a person hearing the message really turns really turns and is <clears throat> and is called out of darkness into light these he also called those whom he called these he also justified put them into covenant he said forgiven in the covenant, not guilty. He, he determined beforehand to conform them to the image of his son. Those whom he determined beforehand, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. There are several things to look at here. Uh, but the first is that this is the very manifestation of the love of God. First, our love of God. 
three times in verses 28 through 39, we hear the recurring refrain of love, placing it at the center of both our action toward God and his toward us. I mention again here the covenant, the covenant with Abraham, and then secondarily the covenant with Moses and the failure of the law to produce the very goal toward which the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4 looked, or all of Deuteronomy for that matter. The Shema, which is said by, just said by Jews every day, every day they say this, about Jews will say the Shema every day, has at its center the love of God. And this is realized in the Messiah. This is what Paul is saying. This, the Shema, is realized in the Messiah and in us as we walk in the Spirit. Listen to the repetition here. First in the Shema and then repeated throughout the book. Culminating in God himself, bringing about the obedience to the command to love God. First, the requirement. Hear, O Israel, he says, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Then again in chapter 10, along with a glance at Israel's failure to do it. 10 verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Verse 15, just giving one verse. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Verse 16. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. There, the command, the command to love the Lord your God and Israel's failure. Circumcise your heart, you stiff-necked people. Don't stiffen it any longer. This was the state of Israel. But Israel will be redeemed, and God will circumcise the heart through the renewal of the covenant, says Moses. The love of God will come, a culmination of God's love for Israel and the world. This will come about when God does about, brings about a new exodus for Israel. See chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and your soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore your captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Verse 6, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God, there it is, with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. There is a future promise that God is going to bring about that which he commands. The people are going to love him because the spirit is going to be given. This is what I'm getting at. Paul is not simply quoting scripture to say this or that verse is fulfilled in God's actions in Jesus. He is doing that, but it's so much more. God is bringing Israel's history and the history of the world through Israel to its climax through the new exodus 
brought about through Jesus's death and resurrection. At long last, God has shown himself to be true to his word, to show himself righteous, to unveil his righteousness in the good news that Jesus is now king and Lord. And thereby God has created a God-loving people. This people was foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. As the son loves the father, so we grow in our love for God. God is seeing to it by the spirit. By the outpouring of the spirit, we are growing in our love for God. This love of God is the true worship, which results in the call to becoming like Jesus, who is like God. This is where Paul was going all along. In chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans and following, people are suppressing the truth, he says, in unrighteousness, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of creeping things, of birds, etc. In Christ, though, the true glory of humanity is restored as God's image is restored. This is where he's been going all along. They were worshiping images. What's, what's God going to do? Through his spirit, he's going to transform them into the image of, of the Messiah who is in the image of God. In Christ, the true glory of humanity is restored as God's image is restored. And now the reason God is doing it, a reason also seen in Deuteronomy's language as well, is God's love for Israel and the world. Verse 31, what therefore shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? God is for you. That's what can be said. And how do we know it? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not, along with his son, freely give us all things? See chapter five, verse eight. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, the Messiah died for us. The logic is simple. We know God is for us because he gave Jesus his son for us. If he did that, he will freely give us all things. The all things here relating to what he has been saying all along, that God will finish this glorification project, the renewal of all creation and Jesus's and our rule over it. That's the all things he will freely give us. Verse 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The idea here is that success, they will not successfully bring a charge against God's elect. Because God's the one who, who can do that. And he won't because he's justified us. Who is he who condemns? It's the Messiah, the one who died, but rather also who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who is also interceding for us. Uh, he's not going to bring a charge. He's not going to condemn because he's interceding for us. God is the one who justifies. He declares in the right covenant member, forgiven saint. So no one can declare otherwise. And the Messiah isn't going to condemn us since he himself died for us and is ruling at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. All of these are arguments from the lesser to the greater. If the lesser is true, how much more the greater? So much could be said, but note just one thing about what he has just said. The Messiah is the one through whom God 
will judge the world. Jesus is the exalted king and judge of all the world, as we saw also in Romans 2. On that day, he said, 2.16, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. This is fundamentally what the resurrection has secured, that he would be exalted as king and judge of the world at the resurrection on that day, in the last day. He's the son of man. He's given authority over the nations to judge them, Daniel 7. And here's the mysterious part, though understandable in light of what we've seen so far. We, too, have a part in judging the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor... Dare to go before the law to the law before the unri- before the unrighteous and not before the saints, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to judge even the smallest of cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? What do you think about that? Here's what I think about it. We should get our act together if such things will be asked of us in the age to come. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 6. If we are to judge the world with the Messiah, what kind of people should we be? And shouldn't we be able to sort out our own problems among ourselves? Do we just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, doesn't matter who I am, what knowledge and wisdom I have for judging, I'm saved, I'm going going to heaven or wherever, or do we get equipped for the task ahead? It's, it's really a serious thing. Every time Paul mentions conduct or what kind of person you ought to be, he talks about people who do such things don't enter the kingdom of God. The reason he does that is not because he wants to say, if you do this, you don't go into the kingdom of God. It is so to say This is the kind of people that will inhabit the kingdom of God because they will be doing something in the the age to come. They will have duties, responsibilities. Think of Jesus when he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many, right? So this is, it's not something like, oh, well, everybody's fine. Everybody just does, you know, you don't have to do anything. No, it's it's get prepared. Get prepared. There is a there's a future ahead for the children of God. Back to his argument. The Messiah isn't going to condemn us since he died for us. Moreover, he loves us with an unbreakable, unseparable love. Who shall separate us from the love of the Messiah? Verse 35. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, Famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword, just as it is written, because of you, we are killed all the day. We are counted as sheep to the slaughter. Messiah's love for you is such that the things brought upon you by your enemies cannot separate you from that love. In fact, we bear these things because of him, Paul says. If they hate him, they will hate you. If they kill him, they may kill you. This is not strange. It is expected. 
rather being separated from the love of God through these things, we actually conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. Verse 37, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. As we saw earlier, to be in Christ is to take upon ourselves Jesus's identity, the identity of Jesus's death and resurrection. We are called to take up our cross and follow him to death for resurrection, of course, but take up your cross and follow him to death. Thus, it's through him that we conquer, Paul says. We exercise proper and right royalty by the genuine spirit-led imitation of Christ in his sufferings. Remember when we were studying Mark that Jesus was claiming all along to be king, but also he was defining what it meant to be king, what it meant to be truly royal. And he went to the cross and there was enthroned. That's what it means to be truly royal. And this is ours as well. Conquering through suffering, reigning through the Messiah. That's it. And to round off this section, Paul closes with this. Verse 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither, neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers nor powers, neither things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in the Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. There is nothing that gives greater confidence than knowing that your father and your brethren are behind you and beside you. As children, there's nothing that inspires more confidence and success in your children than knowing that the parents, or anyone for that matter, but parents especially, that they have your back, that they're with you in what you're going through. As parents, we stumble in many ways, but hopefully we're doing a few things correctly. As parents, there's no greater gift that we can give to our children than that non-severable love that says, I'm for you, I'm with you, and even I've gone before you. Rhetorically, this is what Paul is saying to you as children of God. I am for you, I'm with you, and I've gone before you. Go forth then and conquer in the confidence that the unfailing love of God, as evidenced in the life-giving death of Jesus, is yours.